Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Michael Albert, who is the co-founder of Z Communications. He's also a member of Collective 20. He's an author of several books and hundreds of articles, and we're happy to have him back. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today we're talking about a screenplay. First time we've ever interviewed anyone about a screenplay, and it's based on a book that you wrote called Revolutionary Participatory Society slash 2020 or 2044. And the name of the screenplay is called The Next American Revolution. Why did you decide to write this? And what is it all about? Well, the book was just another in a long line of writing, always trying to do more or less the same thing. Talk about, um, you know, what we want and how to get it. But it used a different approach. It was basically, I suppose you could call it science fiction. They, they have some various names from this, a mockumentary, which means a documentary of something in the future that hasn't happened. You know, how can you document fiction? But nonetheless, that's what technically I think it's called. Um, so it's basically interviews with people who uh, were participants in this ongoing struggle up to the year 2044 and continuing after also, but that's the end point of the book. Um, and while I was writing it, I, I should probably say, you know, I, I don't consider myself a very great writer and certainly not somebody who can write great fiction. Um, so undertaking this was, was a bit of a leap but it was made much less by when I when I came up with the notion of doing it as interviews because after all I've done you know the, the, probably hundreds of interviews and um, so I know what those are like and so I could write an interview both sides of it so I thought I could maybe write it so I wrote the book and as I was nearing the end of the book I began to feel like this isn't a book um, this would be better as a film. Uh, and so when I finished it, I self-published it on Amazon, and it's on there for people who want it. Uh, you know, and I think it's good, but, but I decided that I wanted to try and do it as a film. Now, that was ridiculous, because um, <laughs> I don't know anything about film and have had no experience with it. And it isn't just that I haven't written a screenplay, but nothing. Um, but nonetheless, I thought I would do it as a kind of proof of possibility. So in other words, I would write a screenplay, somebody would see it and say, okay, this sucks, but at least it's a possible thing and maybe we'll pursue it. So that's the way I approached it. Um, I read the screenplay for Goodwill Hunting, um, which is a movie that I loved uh, with, uh, you know, Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck. And it was at MIT in part, which, where I was. So, you know, it resonated with me. It's a great movie. And uh, I loved the screenplay, or I loved the, the film. And so I deduced that the screenplay must be really good. So I read the screenplay. Um, it's very hard to read a screenplay. It's not easy. Um, and you don't see what you see in a film. So I tried to write a screenplay for a film. Uh, next. What was Next American Revolution? And we've won. Um, it, yeah. It, <laughs> so we've won. What gives you the idea that we can win? Well, I suppose there's two ways to approach this. If we can't win, we're totally fucked. Um, so I'm not even going to entertain that possibility, and I never have. 
instead, I just have to think of how we can win. But I also think we can win. History is, people look at history and they see 20 minutes worth of it, you know, a short span worth of it, and they say to themselves, not much can happen. But if you look over the longer span, there is constant change and there is constant progress um, in, in various dimensions. And sometimes things speed up and sometimes they slow down. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is possible to have fundamental change. There have been fundamental changes in societies before. There's no reason to think that, uh, you know, capitalism and, and racism and sexism and, you know, authoritarianism, that that's all the end of the line. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't believe it has to be the end of the line. It might be, but it doesn't have to be. And if it doesn't have to be, we have to do something to make it otherwise. And so this first the book and then the screenplay try to envision a way to communicate that might resonate more than the usual kind of stuff I do, you know, nonfiction books that might resonate more with an audience and do better at um, communicating a picture of what's possible in the terms of a future society and of what's possible in terms of a way of attaining it. And that was the aim. Were there movies throughout the years that inspired you or that you can remember that had some kind of impact on your political development? Well, nothing like this. Um, uh, I think the closest thing I can think of might be Reds from a long time ago. It was about the Russian Revolution. Um, uh, the Battle of Algiers was a powerful movement for people in my generation. Um, Have you ever seen Salt of the Earth, Mike? Yeah, and that was a powerful movement for movie for people of my generation, and and movies that weren't so overtly political, like for instance, Cool Hand Luke, um, a movie that I loved, and there there were a bunch of movies that came out during that time period, um, which probably because of the time period as much as because of the movie, were um, powerful factors. I think the um, you know the Dustin Hoffman movie, The Graduate, or um, the Bonnie and Clyde movie, the first Bonnie and Clyde movie, those movies came out in that period and um, they affected a lot of people. But no, this is, uh, uh, given my narrow understand or my narrow knowledge of, of Hollywood films, um, so I could certainly be wrong, but I think this is quite outside the box. Um, it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know enough films to know. Yeah, it's quite outside the box. Um, and that makes it a very hard sell. But it makes it interesting that you're trying to do something different. I mean, the protagonist, as you mentioned in the book, is the process itself. It's not necessarily uh, an individual character. It's not a, uh, you know, individual sort of love story or like one of these uh, subjective things that I think we're often highlighted in films. It's the process yeah. itself. Yeah, and part of the reason for that has to do with not artistry, I think. Um, I'm not saying there's not artistry in doing those things, but part of the reason doesn't have to do with artistry. In Hollywood, um, a, a critical variable for a film is a star. Um, films are vehicles for stars, and that means the film has to have a part in it that a star will want to act in. And that means a part that the star feels will advance their career, and a part that uh, a star feels maybe will get them an Oscar or some kind of award. And so films become uh, oriented very much around generating a, a role, uh, or maybe two, uh, that 
that a star will feel comfortable with and will feel eager to do because of not the impact on the world so much, not that they couldn't have that motivation, but that isn't so much what's at work. It's more their career. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. Once I, once I, um, uh, it's too long to, I'm trying to figure out a way to tell it that is relatively short and won't be boring. There was a guy, he now owns the Philadelphia Eagles football team. He also had a, a film studio and he came to us at Z Magazine and said he wanted to help us out, which was mind blowing. Um, and I spent two years trying to get him to help us out by giving us a whole lot of money, which is what he said he wanted to do in order to make us be able to compete with Time Magazine in those days. Um, and it came to nothing. The reason it came to nothing was because um, he, he couldn't buy his team. First, he wanted to get the the, uh, uh, the Boston Red Sox, and then and then it became the Philadelphia Eagles when he couldn't get the Red Sox. And he couldn't buy a team because the vetting for being an owner of a team is so strict and so tight that if there were any connection to me in there and to Z, it would be the end. So he had to wait, and he kept waiting. And while he kept waiting, he kept losing his his political desires. And so when he finally became uh, the owner of a team and could probably do what he wanted, he no longer wanted. But the point for this story is that he also had a film studio. And so I was talking with him once at lunch and I asked him a question that I had wondered about for a long time. Why do films take so long to make? Now a movie, and I understand it better now having done a screenplay than I did then, is really a complicated entity. Um, and it does take time. It's not a novel. It, it's a novel in the sense of the screenplay, but then there's the costumes and there's the photography and there's the editing. And the, so it's a really complicated product. Um, nonetheless, 10 years, 15 years to make a movie is a little ridiculous. And so I said to him, what the hell's going on? And he's a producer, right? So he's, he's the, the owner, he's the capitalist. And he said, well, you know what it is, Mike, is that the director is in the process for their, for their career. This is capitalism. And the actors are in the process for their career, but mainly the director. And so when I, after I choose a director, the director gets relations with the actors and the director is immediately looking for their next movie. You know, they're, they're looking in the future also. And the longer they can hang on to the process, the longer the money flows. And even more importantly, the longer they have times with ties with those actors until they get the next film. And so I want to get it out as quick as I can says Jeff, that was his name, Jeff Lurie. I want to get it out as quick as I can, um, but, but they often want to really prolong it. So that's interesting. There are many ways in which the dynamics of profit-seeking and of the kinds of hierarchies that are built into our economy affect movies. And one of the ways that they affect it is orienting the movie, even without sort of censorship logic or bend the public's consciousness logic. They orient the movie in sort of acceptable directions for owners and in directions which um, uh, you, you can pursue safely. And the people involved will want to pursue it. So for their careers. Right. So movies that have high tech in them are good. Movies that have love dynamics in them are good. Psychological breakdowns following the, the, in, in intense um, interpersonal dynamics of killers. Um, you know, all these things are fine. They, they have no 
impact on the broader society. They can be appealing to the people who they have to be appealing to. Now, I mean inside the process, not the audience. And you can make them appeal to the audience. And, and by that I mean, and to me this is markets, movies, TV, all of it. Everybody thinks that they reflect what the audience wants, right? That's the going phrase. Okay, TV has on it what it has on it because audience wants it. Um, uh, movies have what they have because that's what the audience likes. That's the formulation. But I don't think that's the truth at all, at least not in, in a very critical sense. Rather, what happens is a range of stuff is offered, and from that range, the audience does want what finally is, is adopted. So there is an attempt to meet the audience's desires, but only in the range of what's offered, right? So TV didn't used to offer shows without, uh, without advertising, but 100% of the audience would have liked it. Right. But it's right. never offered, so nobody wants it. Everybody gets used to advertising, and everybody wants shows that have the advertising. It doesn't, because that's the universe of what's available. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and that's the way markets work. If you go into prison and you go to the prison commissary on your first day there, nothing appeals to you. On your hundredth day there, the stuff in the commissary, right, has has differential value for you. You now your taste is now narrowed to choosing among those things, and you like some and you don't like others. Well, we're in the prison commentary, commentary, commissary, out in society, because the market it doesn't offer us what a humane economic system would offer. TV doesn't offer us that. And movies don't offer us that. That doesn't mean there's nothing that's good. It just means that, that there are things not there, which we're told couldn't work. And the reason isn't because they really couldn't work. It's because we're used to other things and it's never been tried. All right. That's a long-handed way of, of rationalizing why I tried to do something that you know, doesn't get offered. Well, it's a, it's also gives me a roundabout way to segue into the actual story itself, because within the story itself, there is a section, uh, it's an interview, uh, where there's a discussion about what culture would look like in a revolutionary participatory society that in, <laughs> I, sh I should have cited specifically, um, but I just read the whole thing in the last 24 hours, so it's pretty much in my head. But it, nonetheless, it, I mean, this is, how does another way to say this is that the vice president, Celia, um, what's her last name? Church? No, no. not Church. Um, Damned if I know. The names of all the actors <laughs> are combinations. Uh, see, that's what I mean. It's not like another writer. Celia, Celia Curry. Um, yeah, so now, why is her name Celia Curry? I don't know. I was going to ask you that. Celia Sanchez was a Cuban revolutionary. Okay. And I happen to like Steph Curry. <laughs> From the now that's an exception. He's the, he's the, I think there's only one or two exceptions like that. Everybody else is named after either a political friend of mine's first name or a, um, a historical character's last name. Right. That's sort of ridiculous on the face of it, but that's what their names are. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I don't think it's that ridiculous. Um, it makes sense. The conversation, I think, takes place also with Celia. 
it is with Celia, and it's towards the end of the end of the screenplay, and it, between Miguel Guevara, who is one of the characters who's you know he's introduced immediately because he's introduced or he's interviewing uh, Malcolm King, who's the president at that time. Your audience is probably picking up the names now. Yeah, <laughs> Sergio's <Malcolm> laughing. <laughs> Miguel Miguel Guevara. Miguel is actually the first name of a friend of mine in Venezuela. So it's, it's throughout. It's like that. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so we meet Miguel immediately, who's a journalist who's in the Oval Office interviewing Malcolm King um, and Celia Curry, president and vice president. Celia Curry is actually, or was a former actress. She was also a former governor in California. Um, and towards the end of the screenplay, there's a section where Celia's getting together with like some of these Hollywood actors. They're deciding what they want to do uh, in terms of what they want to do politically. Um, but then... They also go on bouncing back and forth from her organizing the actors to then present day where Miguel's then talking with her about what culture, what Hollywood movies and so forth would look like in this revolutionary participatory society, uh, which I found interesting because I don't think it's something that the left talks. I mean, the left talks somewhat about economics and what it could look like, but not much. Uh, we talk a little bit about what political systems could look like, but not that much. Um, the two parts that I found maybe most interesting were these kinship relationships and the culture, because it's two things that aren't talked about much. I know now in a different interview, we could probably go in depth with your work on participatory economics. I don't want to do that here today. Uh, and I know that's a, also a central part of not only all of your work, but also even in this new society. Um, I wanted to just get a sense of just building off of what you said, what you think culture could look like in a new society we won what could these cultural institutions look like and how would you how do you see or what would you suggest um you know that we would do to create these new kind of institutions and norms well or even you know, practices I, 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 I don't know um nobody knows for sure um it's one thing to talk about which i do a lot economics because you can talk about three or four institutions at the core of it, and that's it, right? I mean, in other words, around that, there's all sorts of diversity and variety and and variation and so on. Um, but you can talk about these core things because you have to have those core things, or I think you have to have those core things in order to have a an equitable and just and self-managing economy. I don't think there's any such core thing for... for um, artistic culture, if you mean, you know, creating movies and, and writing and so on. I, I doubt there's any such core thing for them, but they would be subject to the other core things. So you wouldn't have a star system the way we have. You wouldn't have um, uh, the, the distribution of wealth and power the way we have. And, the, you know, none of that. Um, art, artistic work would be work. Um, that is, it's, it's not so different from other kinds of work. Uh, and that means that it, it has equitable income distribution and it has, uh, which means that you get income, not because you were born beautiful or because you were born as talented as Meryl Streep, but because of how long you work and how hard you work and the conditions under which you work. And so there would be no big disparities of, uh, of income. There's no wealth from profit at all. So there's nobody who owns the big production companies. 
you know, so art would be pursued partly for art's sake, so to speak. Uh, so to, you know, to do something beautiful, to do something moving, to do something that conveys something about the human condition or about something else. And probably it would also be done partly for, I guess, the reasons why I tried to do what I tried to do, which is to communicate something um, with a purpose of, of moving things forward. I don't know what more to say than that, honestly. Um, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what part, of, <laughs> what part of, of the screenplay you're talking about. Um, I remember, I remember her being involved in, uh, you know, discussions about how the, the revolutionary participatory society collective began in Hollywood or discussions about what the Hollywood movement did. Uh, there's also an interesting exchange with her about beauty. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, that's from real life. Uh, the, the, if you tell me what you remember of it, it was almost what you had just said, which was that someone wasn't just going to be sort of born with this. You know, you're born beautiful, and then therefore you sort of obtain all of these uh, privileges in society, and people treat you differently. You're able to sort of exert your. I don't know what you'd say. Your. I mean, you also pay a price for it. I think. Yeah. Depending on. Yeah. Right. Uh, Anyway, the, 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 the discussion in the, in the screenplay is about what would happen, how would beauty or human beauty or, or that kind of, of quality uh, manifest itself in a, in a good society. Mm -hmm. But um, it came from, uh, I had um, edited a book that with, with Tom Hayden, um, who was a very active political person in the 60s and later a uh, an elected political official in California. Um, and he did a book about with South End Press where I was at the time. And I went out to California to work with him and he was married to Jane Fonda at the time. And, um, you know, that was interesting and a lot of fun in some ways. Um, a fiasco and others. When I first got to the house, I rang the doorbell and it sounded like Cujo, you know, the dog from the, yeah. <laughs> this monstrous dog comes flying out and I thought it was going to, I thought it was all over. This was a big um, uh, German shepherd. And Tom said, down. And that was the end of that. But I was a wreck for a little while. Anyway, we got along fine. But later, they um, Jane did a movie on Golden Pond, which is really a fascinating movie. And she did it with her father. And she had me and Lydia, who I live with, um, up there to visit them. Um, and with with. Uh, Tom. And on the way up in the car, that's what came up in the course of the discussion. I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I do remember the interchange. And it was Jane and I really going, you know, going back and forth. And she, you know, and Jane Fonda was a, was somebody who had been uh, blessed with the kind of beauty that pays off in current society. Uh, she's also very talented, but it's true. And she said that, you know, she's, she said at one point, there's, there's beauty that is so intense that it almost hurts. It is, it, you know, it, so she did have a, a conception of the existence of this thing called beauty, because there's some people who will just deny it. There are some people on the left who will say, oh, there's no such thing, everybody looks the way they look. Or just like they'll say, there's not really any such thing as talent, you know, as inborn talent. It's just you work hard, you do well, if you don't. 
of course it's ridiculous. There are differences and they are inborn. Um, and that, that scene, you know, transferred over to the movie, adapted a whole lot. And that's true for a lot of things in the screenplay. And I'm sure it's true for the way other people do screenplays. Yeah. Uh, you know, real life comes into it. Right. I don't, I think that's a tough one because especially today, there's so many discussions about, you know, how people see their body image, what we've done through advertising to sort of shape the way that young people think about themselves, their sexuality, all the rest. Um, I think there's a reaction. I think, yeah, on behalf of some people, there's a reaction that all of this is just kind of nonsense and that there are people who, what would that, what does that necessarily mean though for you? I mean, how would we, it, it's, no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say what, I don't know how to put this. What would it, would you create new institutions or are these like practices and norms? When I think of culture, I'm always sort of wondering what does it look like to change the way that people would think well, about this? Or is it how would how would we create systems that wouldn't just necessarily reward something like that? For me, the cultural question is more about race, religion, ethnicity, um, community. So that's the first level of it, to me at least. Um, what do you do to create a, a system in which instead of uh, groups that somehow have some kind of shared identity seeing each other as threatening, um, and as opponents and as either targets to exploit or potential exploiters to avoid, um, instead of having that kind of arrangement, what do you do? And it, it's not, you know, I, it, this is not my area of focus, but it seems to me that you have to have a system which sort of guarantees communities um, the means and the space and the respect of self-definition and of self-determination uh, and that practices empathy between them and allows porousness between them and so on. But the other stuff that you're talking about beauty or take something much simpler first. So somebody is born um, LeBron James, right? Now you can tell me until the cows come home that I can be born me and become LeBron James. And to me, that's total nonsense. I can't, right? It's not going to happen. It doesn't matter. I could be better at basketball than I would be if I didn't practice a lot, but I am not going to become LeBron James. Um, not the build, not the reflexes, not the, not all sorts of things. Okay. So he's born with certain qualities or characteristics that enable him to do certain things. So is Noam Chomsky, right? Chomsky is born with certain characteristics and qualities, and they're not a function of his working hard. He works hard, but it doesn't matter. Most of us could work until, you know, forever, and we wouldn't display, you know, his particular genius. Okay. The question is, is there anything bad about that, on the one hand, that it, that it is that way, that that's the way nature is? And two, what do you do about it? Okay, so I don't think there's anything bad about it at all. I think life would be incredibly boring if we were all identical. I mean, how boring could things be? Probably not more boring than that, right? So it's not bad. No one can do everything, and therefore you can vicariously enjoy and learn from what somebody else can do that you can't. Why is that bad? It's only bad if the traits and the qualities bestow upon you power and wealth 
an influence that exceeds what others have. So you shouldn't reward being born with these qualities or with any particular qualities that happen to be valued in society, right? Um, you shouldn't be rewarded for it, but nor should you be chastised for it. And it's a good thing because it's, it accomplishes a lot and it lets other people benefit both vicariously and through what it accomplishes. So when I thought about beauty f to write this thing, I thought the same way about it. Um, it is there. You know, it, it's true that society, you know, in an ant society, Jane Fonda is not beautiful, right? Okay, that's true. So in other words, and in one human society, maybe she is, and in another one, maybe she isn't. But in a human society, there will be things that are deemed, that appear beautiful to lots and lots and lots of people. If we didn't play basketball, LeBron James's skills wouldn't be as astounding, right? But we do. So they are. Okay, so, you know, if you're born with these qualities, you shouldn't pay a price for it. You should, and the price people pay for beauty, I don't know how we got off on this, but the price people pay for beauty now in our society, mm -hmm. I think is real. So in other words, um, particularly women, but maybe to an extent men too, but women very early on who, have, who are born with certain attributes learn to flirt learn to get their way, right? And that's part of it. And that, you know, has impact on the person. So that's a price you pay. I mean, the, what it can deliver actually becomes a price that you also pay. Um, I think that's true. And I've known people for whom it's definitely been true. Anyway, you also get the advantage of being able to be a movie star and earn millions. Um, but that shouldn't exist. That, that disappears, right? And we could try and get the other to disappear too, but at least the material reward and the power reward for these things, they go away. Right. And the, well, I don't want to get into that because we could have that conversation when we talk about participatory economics. Because of course the response to that would be what's the incentive to do anything, so on and so forth. Um, I didn't want to go too far down that cultural rabbit hole, but the way that you formulated what how you would think of culture, so community, religion, I forget what else you said. Uh, all the way back, a long time ago, when, when, you know, in my political youth, I guess you could say, the, the Marxist uh, sector of the left was very powerful and it was very uh, intellectually advanced compared to the rest, right? So in other words, they had answers for everything. Um, the answers were often wrong, I think, but they had answers for everything. They were very confident and there was that. And, and one of the debates was, one of the strong debates was, um, is economics fundamental, paramount, uh, the driver of everything? Not that nothing else is important, but that economics is the base and everything else is built on it as a superstructure. And I found that completely unconvincing from day one. And uh, that led me and various other people in my part of the movement where I was, first it was called the totality of oppressions. That's what we called it. And what we meant was racism, sexism, economic oppression. And we also meant authoritarianism. And that stuck with me for my whole life. Um, and, it, and it morphed into the view that a society has an economy and 
it's because why it's because people need to eat they need to have places to live they need to do things and you need an economy to generate all that so you have an economy and you have human relations inside the economy and it turns out to be class relations and a society has kinship why because they give birth and they have to nurture kids and so there's there's these institutions and these structures that that you can call kinship structures around sexuality and around um, upbringing and so on and a society has a polity because people have to make decisions and people have to uh, develop shared norms and so you have a political system a polity and a society has a culture because people celebrate this is the way i thought about it people celebrate and people um uh, have language and people have then customs and that that was the heart for me of culture and community it's not to say there isn't more that that was the heart of it. And uh, so for me and, uh, um, you know, various other people thinking about community vision or cultural vision, vision for that part of life mm -hmm. meant thinking about how do we organize into role structures and, and institutions, things like religion and, and race and celebration and language and all the rest of it. Um, not so much how do we organize painting so so somebody who is thinking about this they're they're listening they're saying i'm a revolutionary or i want to be or i want to see major changes in, in society why do we still have present presidents races white houses the things that you're mentioning there is a thought i think on some on the left that that we could and i'm not saying it's right or wrong or i we should probably strive towards that but I, you know I actually, it was one of the things that I thought, genuinely thought. I was like, fuck, we're still in the White House, huh? I was like, well, he's probably right. I was like, it's only 24 years from now. <laughs> I was right. like, I we, mean, we probably do oh, still I have see. a White House. That's what you mean by why do we still have? You mean in the, in the screenplay? Yeah, why in the screenplay. I was okay. going, ah, oh, shit, we still have a White House. We, we didn't do that good, but we did, we did better than what <laughs> we did better than not. Um, um, yeah, well, again... Uh, you know, in 1968 or 1969, we used to say we want the world and we want it now. And we meant we want it now. Jim Morrison. The trouble is, we were not too smart and we didn't understand. <laughs> and the fact that we didn't understand meant that all of the tremendous courage coming from my generation and energy coming from my generation and creativity coming from my generation, uh, it accomplished a lot. But not nearly as much as it could have, I think. And part of the reason was a, a lack of understanding of how long the battle was going to be and of how important it was to solidify the gains that we made. We, we accomplished a lot in people's minds, but not as much structurally, institutionally. But anyway, why would we have, uh, you know, the White House and still have races and, and whatever else you mentioned um, 24 years from now? Because 24 years is an eye blink. In this 24 years, I uh, in this screenplay, some people would call me absolutely insane that I have um, in essentially uh, a position way to the left of Sanders, um, winning in a massacre in in 2044, and then moving on to continue the political and cultural and economic and kinship transformation of society which has already gone an awful long ways um i thought so, both by uh, the way. yeah I, I think if we accomplish that it would be uh quite nice <laughs> i thought both by the way 
what? I thought both, by the way. There were times when I was reading the script going, fuck, I was like, Mike really is being positive here. And then there were other times when I was like, shit, we still have a White House. <laughs> it's like, yeah, shit. I, but no. I understand. No, what can you do? You're trying to make it as like as visionary as you can while also basing it enough in reality where people can relate to it a little bit. I mean, I suppose if, uh, no, in 24 years, we'll still have the White House. That doesn't mean that the president will be like what the president is now. Right. That doesn't mean, I mean, you saw the speeches at the end from the president. Right. Right. right? There's nothing remotely like that. Um, and, and he's just, it, that's not the center of the book. The center of the book is the process that's going on around them that yep. put them in office, but it's going right past them into the future. Um, so no, but and they understand that. And over, t- yeah, they, they're fine with that. And over time, um, yeah, the white house would, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, in other words, I think when a lot of people think revolution, and I probably how I thought about it when I was young and getting involved with the movement is that like all of this would go away, that you would have, there wouldn't be, you would move to something better than representative democracy. There wouldn't be like Congress and there wouldn't be um, corporations. There wouldn't be banks and all of this. But as time goes on. Well, that's all true. I agree with all that. You, you think will so? Move all that. You it's think just so? that it not, not in 20 minutes. It won't be one minute. We have all of that. Right. And two years later, we don't have all of that. Rather, there's a process. This is what the book describes, I think, or what the screenplay describes. There's a process in which diverse interconnected movements are building alternatives and are fighting simultaneously for change inside institutions. So you're fighting for change inside, let's say, Amazon or hospitals or whatever you want. And you're simultaneously building alternatives which embody the new values that you intend to. So you're winning changes that move toward those new values in existing institutions, and you're building new institutions that go even further toward it, because you're not saddled by the old structure in new institutions, and you're developing that as time goes along. But it does take some time, and it and it it's a constant struggle. And uh you know, when you do come out the other side, uh, I I believe that there will come a time, you know, maybe it's 50 years from now, maybe it's even 35 years from now, if it goes exactly the way the screenplay says, or almost roughly, and then another 10 years go even faster, um, when, no, you don't have, there is no such thing as a corporation, because all workplaces, there are still workplaces, all workplaces are organized in a way that is completely foreign to, to corporations. It's just completely different. There's no such thing as uh, uh, a contemporary type uh, police force. Uh, there, there are institutions which help with difficult problems that need, you know, need intervention, but there's nothing like a, you know, a contemporary police force. There's nothing like a contemporary state. There is a polity, because you need, you, you can't just say to yourself, uh, look, um, corporations suck. Corporations are horrible. Corporations do all these bad things. All true, right? So let's get rid of factories. Let's get rid of workplaces. Let's just not have any of that. This is going too far. This is saying something true. Capitalist econ- economic institutions are horrendous. 
but it's it's extrapolating to we should have no economy. That's nonsense. Saying uh, contemporary political institutions are horrendous, and they are. I mean, it's impossible to over you know to exaggerate how horrendous these things are. Someday in the future, people will know that they are as bad. I mean, the, just how horrendous they are. But even though they're horrendous, even though the state, the political system is horrendous, that doesn't mean you don't have a polity. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be norms and, and you know, agreements that are, that are um, negotiated throughout society in a political system. There are. It's just completely different. Uh, and the same thing goes for other things. I was going to jump into kinship, but the reason that I pulled two specific sections out of the out of the uh, screenplay was because they're very relevant to today. I mean, two of the comments, and I wanted to know how much of this you pulled from personal experience and how much of this you're just thinking about in today's context and adding your thoughts. Um, the first is uh, Miguel Guevara talking with Bill Hampton. Bill Hampton, is Bill Bill Fletcher? Okay, yeah. so Bill Fletcher and Fred Hampton <laughs> yep. is who I thought it was. Um, they're having a conversation about the second convention um, of the RPS or RSP. I'm sorry. So they're having, I know what you've got here. Yeah. It, well, it makes it. Yes. Military people with, keep going. So (laughs) let me read a portion of this. Miguel is, this is Miguel. He's asking, you were in a confrontation at the second RSP convention. Um, am I right? Bill Hampton says, yes, a group of ex military proposed that we should arm ourselves and train ourselves to battle directly with the police. It was understandable, it was well-motivated, but it was horribly wrong-headed. So seven ex-soldiers in RPS hats and military jerseys occupy the stage beneath the RPS flag, and a white soldier steps up and says, you know, I'm rejecting weapons as cowardly, no one ever leaflets anyone into submission, overcoming repressive violence requires inspirational violence, look at your rifles, can't you feel their power? It is that simple. You are with us or you are with the state. Now this exchange is taking place throughout the United States right now. Um, Where did you get this? I'm assuming some of this comes from your experiences in the 60s and 70s. Um, And I'm also wondering, you know, what are your, what, what, I'll just let you take it from there because this to me seems so important right now with what's going on. Well, it's written uh, two and a half years ago. So it wasn't written during what's happening. Right. Um, But it's a, constantly recurrent thing um and yes it does come you know in my case more from uh, the 60s and and uh, weatherman and the black panthers and so on um and you know i knew people in all these organizations i i was um uh, what do you call it recruited for the weatherman but i didn't agree to it that's an interesting story actually the weathermen in boston were very astute very smart, very sharp, very knowledgeable, and very angry and militant. And so was I, very angry and militant. And they tried to recruit Robin and I. Um, and I went to Nome because um, uh, I was at MIT and Nome was, you know, uh, we were friends and it was in the early days of our friendship, but we were. And uh, I told him and I asked him advice. And Nome hates giving advice. And he says, he generally says, I don't know, you know, that's not what I'm good at. I, I, you know, I don't know anything about strategy. And this time he, I think he was afraid of what might happen. And so he gave me some advice. And what he said is, 
and this I'm not making this up because it's it's you'd think it would be made up after the fact to make him look you know like foresight but but he literally said you know they're going to blow some stuff up they'll probably blow some of themselves up and they will do nobody any good with them and that was about all he would offer and that was of course actually correct um uh, i i think and these were some of these guys were my friends and, and women were my friends and uh you know they did blow themselves up and that was a very sad development and when um sorry when uh in those days one of the forms it would take was that people would go off into the countryside and they'd bring these 22s that in those days that was the guns i mean you know this stuff better than i do from your military training but nonetheless that that's what they would do and they would shoot tin cans and they would think they were preparing for something and and they would um they would literally some of them would cut themselves you know cut and stitch themselves right Again, preparing for something. Right. And I found all this to be utterly, you know, I don't mean to demean anybody who might be listening and who might be thinking along similar channels, but I found it to be just insane. Because what they were talking about, it was as little as, it was a little like if I had been talking about going into the ring with Muhammad Ali and I was preparing for it, you know, by working out. I'm going to get <laughs> annihilated, right? I mean, they, yeah. they had no conception of A, how poor they would be at what they thought they were going to be doing. Yes. And B, how well-trained and competent the people they were going to be up against were, not to mention that, you know, if you bring a rock, they'll bring a a pistol. If you bring a pistol, they'll bring a rifle. If you bring a rifle, they'll bring a machine gun. And if you bring a machine gun, you're going to fucking confront a tank. There is no way to win that way. And um, at that time, uh, there were other people who had some other views. There were some people, the Blackstone Rangers was a gang in Chicago, and they thought you should infiltrate the police. I never met them but they thought you should. And I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And it's obvious it makes a whole lot of sense if you look at the Vietnam military and the people who were, I think, um, you know, arguably the most courageous um, anti-war organizers in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and I didn't do it, um, who went into the military to organize in the army and who did a damn incredible job of, of doing that and who weakened it greatly in that sense. And in the police, it's a lot easier um, if yeah. you think about it. Yeah. And the, one thing about it is harder, but the thing about it that's easier is that the police are in their own country. That's right. Right. And they may even be in their own neighborhoods, which would be a good reform to pass. They may even be in their own neighborhoods and that makes it a lot easier. Um, so it is a good thing to do. But anyway, the point of that is um, I get people being angry. Trust me, I really do get that. And I get people you know, wanting to lash out. Um, but but it it's not wise, and I would go so far as to say it's not even responsible, even though I empathize with it, right, to lash out and to, um, uh, you know, follow this kind of path 
without thinking very seriously about the implications. At first for you, though, this didn't come out of a place of like ideology. You weren't a pacifist who said, look, I'm just opposed to this for this reason that you looked at the situation, thought to myself, I'm pissed off. I'm angry. I'm tired of what's going on. What we're doing isn't seem to be making the kind of difference I want to make. And but then you look at the situation and think strategically, this is just crazy. Um, Now, in hindsight, you've had enough personal experience not only from that time in your life, but you've worked with groups throughout the world. You know activists and organizers throughout the world. So I'm sure over the last 30 or 40 years, you've also seen in many other contexts the same thing unfold. That it's not just that it was the weather underground here in the U.S. that failed, but that there were numerous groups in Europe, and I'm thinking of Italy, Germany, I mean, go on and on. Yeah, Um, that's true. And I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist now. You know, I think self-defense makes sense. I think there are, there are circumstances in which it makes sense. Um, you know, you, you, you strike and you have a picket line and scabs want to get through it. Um, that's going to get violent, and it's, it, it's okay that it does, right? I mean, it's not, people shouldn't just sit there and take it from the scabs coming through. You know, but there, so there are things. Um, the problem with violence is partly what we were talking about a minute ago. It's their terrain, right? It's where they win. Uh, a, a sensible strategy does not pick as terrain the terrain on which you're weakest and they're strongest. It's virtually the only terrain on which they're strong. So it's their strongest terrain. It's our weakest terrain. That's probably not good strategy. So that's one problem. The second problem is what it does to you and what it does to your movement. And that's not a small thing. So it does tend to make movements, um, especially in a country like ours, wildly macho. It does tend to, to exaggerate and um, propel uh, those kinds of traits, which means it also diminishes the probability that large numbers of women are going to relate. Um, take the Intifada. Um, when, when it was nonviolent, uh, it was it was much bigger, and it was actually making great headway. And the Israelis were smart enough to realize that they had to provoke um, the Palestinians. And the Palestinians sort of had more discipline in many ways than than we did, um, and held off. Um, but then it finally got violent, and and the 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 depth and the range of support for it did diminish. And that, so that's another cost. Um, Right. The, the person who, one of the first people in the United States in the 60s, who was a strong um, um, proponent of fighting back, you know, meeting violence with violence, was a guy at the time, his name was Stokely Carmichael. And he had been, and so was Rap Brown late, a little later, and they both had been organizers in the civil rights movement of civil disobedience, right? So these, this was not some guy off the street who had been violent and just transferred it, right? That happened for lots of people, but that wasn't this guy. This guy was an advocate of and a trainer of and a participant in um, uh, civil disobedience without fighting back, getting clubbed. And what happened is he got clubbed so much and he saw so much pain that it, it shifted him. And I understand it. And it's, you can't really, you know, what are you going to do? Rail at the guy for that? You, you can't. But 
but it's not helpful. No, and it's particularly not helpful if someone has a voice like that within the movement. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, when you have a certain amount of influence, I think, do you understand why you would rail against them? Yes. I think you just have to do it with respect. And I think you do it intensely because that person has an outweighed influence within the movement. I mean, I think in other words, I would understand if there was a 29-year-old black veteran right now who was leading the BLM movement and was ranting and raving about being in Afghanistan and Syria and the things he had seen. And uh, I would understand it, but I would intensely criticize that person because I'd be really scared that that person could influence any number of people, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. And and that's what the scene is about and, yeah. uh, you know, the way it unfolded. And uh, Are you worried about it today? Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, how can you not be? Uh, today's situation is very, for me, it's very hard to understand in a lot of ways. Um, it's big um, in some ways on a, on a scale that hasn't been seen before. It's moving fast in some ways, like some other times, you know, but there isn't uh, uh an, an ideological underpinning to it, uh, and that's a difference. And there isn't really a counterculture in the sense that I understood it and experienced it, and that's a difference, a glue that's missing. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know whether those are good things or bad things from the point of view of its, of its, you know, of its continuing to grow, of its continuing to get stronger, and of its continuing to um, um, diversify its attention uh, to basically all sides of life. Uh, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But am I worried about guns? Yeah, I'm not, I, I am not as worried as some probably, and I could be completely wrong in, in this, that it will become that prevalent among leftists. What I am worried about is that the right will have find enough of it to use and to exploit um, to justify repression and to justify, um, I mean, this is the second time for this. It's the way Nixon beat Humphrey. Yep. Um, uh, and you know, I'm arguably part of the reason why he could do that. Right. The, the militants that we had in the movement, the militants was right, but some of its manifestations helped Nixon and some of the manifestations now are going to help Trump. Yeah. Uh, and they already are in the about. polls. Yeah, that I am very worried about. Yeah, because because of what another Trump victory would mean, right? Uh, is, is almost impossible to contemplate. So I don't I don't want to go down that road because we we talk about that on our own time and uh, we okay. can talk about it on an, on another interview. Um, but you mentioned earlier, and then I'll move on to another exchange that I think is really uh, useful for people today to think about. And then we can sort of wrap up, but I'm, I'm interested in, and we could even do another one on, on different exchanges and ideas within the, uh, within the screenplay in the book. But I'm also interested in what you had said earlier about, so there's going to be people who listen to this and they're going to pick up what you said earlier and they're going to say, Mike isn't saying that we should go out there and be battling the cops with guns or battling the right. But he did say that self-defense is justified. What, what does that mean to you? And, 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 I know this is tough stuff to ask people because whatever you say is going to, it's like, okay, Mike Albert said this about this. So I know you have to be careful about what you say, but, but I'm interested in what you mean by that because I've been questioning myself where I have people coming to me. 
I the only thing I disagree with you strongly on is that the left isn't interested in these guns. I think, you know, we call them weapons, but guns. Sergio and I have been encountering any number of people who don't self-identify as the left, people who are just kind of there, you know, on the edge, sympathetic to the movement, who are talking about the guns. Um, the leftists that I know, they... They're t- I think it's there and I think it's prevalent, but I think it's less prevalent the more you find people who are actually engaged in communities. So you might have a leftist out there who identifies as a radical socialist, who shows up to some of these events, who supports people online or whatever it is, probably more inclined to be doing the weapon thing than say somebody who volunteers half their week at the homeless shelter and also organizes with a tenants union. That's been my experience at least, but I think it's really prevalent. I mean, I, it scares the shit out of me. And so people would ask me, they're like, well, Vince, you've always said you're not a pacifist. Uh, you own guns yourself. Um, what is, you know, do we have a right to have self-defense? And if we do, what does that mean? Does that mean just having a gun in my house? I mean, what does this look like in this country? And my friends overseas, of course, think this is nuts. They hear all of this and they're like, why do you have guns? My God. And I'm like, well, I guess we're in because we live in the place that we live. So it's like if you're here and there's a bunch of people around you with guns, you generally feel like, well, if something happens, I would like to have a gun. I mean, it's obviously a terrible cycle. Um, but anyway, I'm just wondering kind of what you mean and how yeah. you process that. I mean, I, I admit that, that I don't think about it probably nearly as much as you do because I don't see it as nearly as likely to... Um, escalate on our side. Um, but I, again, I could be completely wrong about that. But when I say that self-defense is justified, that doesn't mean that I think it is intelligent to get into situations where you are attacked, mm-hmm. nor do I think it's intelligent to um, uh, attempt self-defense in a way which will fail inexorably. Um, that's not defending oneself, that's killing oneself, right? In other words, I mean, so if, if somebody comes into the room and swings at me, I'm going to defend, and if I can ward them off, I'm going to ward them off, um, but I'm not going to pull a gun. Um, and if they come in with a gun, well, we're all fucked. Um, if I shoot them or if they shoot me, as far as the grand scheme of things, it's a horrendous outcome. So I don't really think, I don't own a gun and I, I wouldn't. Um, uh, but, but the key thing is the situation that you create. So if movements, if movements can create a context in which um, A, they are not um, unnecessarily provoking violence against themselves, B, they are defending themselves in a way which doesn't generate still more violence, but they can say, oh, hey, look at me, I defended myself. Meanwhile, I made it worse. Um, And if they can, um, I mean, the way you deal with violence, in my mind at least, is you create a context in which the other side being violent hurts them. That's what you have to do. That's the only thing that really will work. Um, if, if you create a context in which for the other side to, um, 
utilize force or even laws, right, to repress hurts them, then they are strategic enough and smart enough to try another approach, at least most of the time. Um, that requires us to be thing. not principled, though. I mean, that requires yeah. us to be principled and nonviolent. Yeah. Otherwise, the people in the middle are going to go, well, you guys are violent, too. So what the hell are you talking about? Well, that's one of the... I mean, that's what I hear now. People I don't, people I know who aren't in the movement, they go, well, you guys shot a couple people. They shoot a couple. Yeah. I mean, this is how it works. It would be way different. The people I know who are on the fence right now would think about this situation differently. And I'm not talking about the uprisings three months ago in Minneapolis, but I'm saying all this shit that's carried on, the battling in Portland, the chop Chaz zone in Seattle, all this type of shit, armed protesters in Louisville, people see that. And if it would have been disciplined, coherent, nonviolent civil disobedience, we would have had another 10, 20, 30% support among Americans who don't see themselves as part of the I movement. Think that's right. And that's what I mean by you have to be strategic. And principled. Right? I mean, and well. Because yeah, otherwise yeah. you don't have any ground to stand on. People just say you guys are hypocrites. Yeah. And and uh, it can be true. Um, sure. That is, that is the, it isn't always true that our critics are wrong. Right. Sometimes our critics are right. That's Um, something that comes up throughout in the book. We have a tendency to think that anybody who criticizes us must be a, you know, a fascist thug, maniac, and wrong. It's not true. Lots of times, criticisms of us are warranted. And what we should be doing is hearing them and trying to do better. So, um, you know, I agree with you. And I do think that... that, uh, Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna hold a demonstration and you're gonna have 200 people, and you're gonna do it in a place where where the other side is going to want to repress you, you're already in trouble, right? Demonstrations should have 5,000 or 10,000 or 50,000 people, yep. and they should be tight knit and they should uh, be disciplined about what they're doing and understand what they're doing. And then you know the 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 repression against you looks bad on the other side rather on your side. Now I've got to be honest with you. I used to, we used to say uh, different strokes for different folks, multi multi tactic, multi issue. Okay. So multi issue was that notion that it's not just the economy, it's race, it's gender. It's okay. So that was the multi issue side of the thing. The multi tactic side of the thing was look, uh, sometimes it makes sense to do a March and it's just a March. Uh, and sometimes it makes sense to do a rally and it's just a rally or a teaching and it's just a teaching. But sometimes it makes sense to do something that's more militant. And we thought it made sense at times to, um, you know, we would argue organize a, a big rally on the Boston Common, then a march that comes off of it, and finally trashing in Harvard Square. And and the, the mentality was um, we're demonstrating the size we're demonstrating the discipline, and then we're demonstrating the militants. And we're saying to them, make changes, or every part of that's going to be bigger next time. Um, okay, that, there's some logic to that, but the trouble was that the last stage of it didn't make it bigger, right? If, yeah. if, if it was true that breaking windows would increase the size of the movement, and increase the consciousness of people doing it, and increase the solidarity of all the actors, then I'd be all for breaking windows, right? But if breaking windows does the opposite, 
then it's not a, a wise tactic. It's a self-defeating tactic. And you have to assess which is it. So I totally agree. And I, my question to you is, do you think there's more people with a voice on the left, people who have anywhere from like a small platform to a large platform who feel this way, who don't say anything because they're scared of what they're going to get from people on the left, that people on the left are going to quote unquote, cancel them, attack them, call them out, tell them they're traitors, alienate them from the movement, whatever it may be. I mean, is that the primary reason that you think more let people on the sure. left don't speak you know, up? I, I'm not sure. I know people my age and, uh, you know, I think some of them are reticent because they're tired. Some of them are reticent because they are so busy doing other things, movement things. Uh, I doubt many of them have that have that fear um, because I don't think many of them would anticipate that. Although a lot of people don't write, say, about the election for a similar reason to that. You're right about that. In other words, a lot of people don't write about uh, uh, beating Trump being a priority, so much of a priority that you have to vote for Biden in, in swing states. A lot of people don't write about that because they don't want to face the, the you know, the, the, anger and the and the the denigration that that you get uh that's true i don't know whether that extends over into this issue um i just think it's the difference between where you are and where i am um you know not, i'm not i don't mean age well that's part of it but but you're in the middle of the country and i'm in boston yeah i'm um, in northwest indiana <laughs> yeah, so, so it's different um uh but maybe so. I mean, you might be right about that. And if so, that's as, honestly, that's as, um, that's as, as large a, a failure of being strategic as advocating guns is. I mean, in some ways it's larger. Look, if you know what's going on and if you know what's, what's better and what's worse, and you know it because of experience and because of sober analysis and so on and so forth. And you don't say anything. How is that not as bad or worse than if you're young, pissed off, angry as hell, and you think, you know, if you don't get a gun, you're going to get blown away. Okay, so, you know, who's making the bigger failing here, right? The one who has all that background and who doesn't talk or the one who's young and just getting going and is making a mistake? I think, right? I think the, you know. Sometimes on the left, too, I would say that we might fetishize youth a little too much. I think that there's a little too much fetishizing of, like, this is the new generation. They've got all these ideas. I, you know, the, to the degree that the new generation has new progressive ideas compared to the older generation, it's because of the work the older generation did over the last 40 years to lay the groundwork for them to be born into a world where those kind of ideas are a lot easier to come across, are a lot easier to access, are easier to, uh, you know, express without fear of, you know, pushback and all the rest. I mean, it is also due to the work that we've done since we've been teenagers, you know, for the last 18 years, I'm 36 now. So for the last 18 years, yeah, the work that we've done, but I've always found this somewhat troubling for two reasons. One, because then the, it it's as if almost like with capitalism, when people get rich, it's like, oh, I did this on my own. And it's like, oh, no. like the reason that we had these opportunities, this knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, was because of the generations before us who laid the groundwork for us for better or worse. So that always troubled me. And it also troubled me because, 
when I got out of my 20s, I mean, I'm 36 now. When I look at when I was 30, I think you were fucking crazy. And then when I was 30, when I thought about how I was thinking at 22, I was like, you were crazy. Like some of it was good, but a lot of it was crazy. So I'm at 36 now. I look back at what, you know, say Sergio and I were saying to people at a conference or something or wherever we were when we were 22, 23 year old pissed off combat vets home from the war. And I can't even believe these people put up with us for as long as they did. Um, you know, so I, anyway, I do think that's an issue as well Is like, and we don't respect our elders enough. So I think, yeah, it's true that we have to be critical of people who have come before us, but I also think it's tied directly into the culture that we've created in this country where we really like the old are just, Hey, put them to the side, put them here, put them there, get them out of my nose. I got stuff to do. I got life to live. I don't have this old person to take care of. And I, you know, it's, it's a little different, but I think it stems from some of the same thing. I don't know. American culture is not a very wonderful context in which to try and do political work. It just isn't. Um, It's too violent. It's too bitter. It's too, um, you know, attack or be attacked. It's too, I mean, all these kinds of, it's too individualist. It's too, but it's the way it is, you know? So, so, okay. That's the world that we have to function in. Um, And then we have to figure out how to do it effectively. As far as the young, I guess I would say youth gives you energy. Youth gives you, um, in some contexts, courage. Um, Youth gives you um, a lot of freedom. Um, But youth per se doesn't give you knowledge and it doesn't give you intelligence and it doesn't give you, um, you know, careful reasoning. It doesn't deny that. It doesn't make that impossible, but it certainly doesn't give it to you. And so you see all kinds of things. Um, I was very lucky when I was in college. I was at MIT with Noam. And so, uh, you know, people talk about having mentors or people from whom they learn stuff. And he wasn't the only one. Howard Zinn. There were various people who, you know, I was around all the time. And... Um, well, shit, like you couldn't have had two better than that. You basically got two of the Mount Rushmore on your, uh, yeah. as your mentor. So. so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that's a different situation than some kid who's, you know, off essentially by themselves and encountering for the first time utter insanity and, uh, uh, you know, feeling that they have to do something. Right. Uh, that's very different. And and there were plenty of, there was plenty of that when I was young. I mean, the, the, the groups that I was in, with at MIT, because of Noam, because of Howard, because of some other people, um, were rather different. I mean, and so, you know, uh, Weatherman existed, um, but it held no appeal for us. And it wasn't because we weren't militant or because we weren't angry or because we weren't energetic. It was just because they had a, had a warped view of what could work and what couldn't. And, you know, well, something else that might be useful, because I know we both have uh, something that we have to do here in about 45 minutes. So let's do another 10 or 15 minutes. And I, I have one more portion of the book 
I'm sorry, of the uh, screenplay that I'd like to bring up because I think it's going to be very useful for people to think about. I'm also assuming this comes from your personal experience. So this is a exchange between Miguel Guevara again and uh, Noam Carmichael, who I believe is named after Noam Chomsky and Stokely Carmichael, who you talked about earlier. Um, it's really this, maybe I don't even have to read much of this, but I, I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The question Miguel Guevara asked Noam Carmichael is, how did race impact RPS? And then there's like three or four pages of a discussion about sort of, are we good, Serge, on battery? Okay, so we'll just take like 10 more minutes. But there's this discussion about race and how it would, you know, how you would talk about this, which is like this reoccurring thing that I absolutely love about the screenplay, which is that I think it shows how you would have more meaningful, useful, productive conversations. And this, of course, might come, I'm assuming, from your own mistakes in the past, as I'm reading through this, I'm th this made me think of nothing but how much I fucked up over the years. So I appreciate that. Um, but there's a lot of moments in the screenplay where I'm reading it going, yep, yep, did this. I did that for sure. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. And this might be the way that you would go about um, doing it differently. Right now with this, I mean, some of the convert, I mean, like verbatim stuff that I've heard uh, from activists, you know, people I know right now black activists I know who are telling white people, I don't have time to explain racism to you. Um, not very helpful. I understand where that comes from, but not helpful or productive and definitely not a way to build a movement. I don't think. And then white activists, of course, whoever else is guilty of all kinds of other things. What are the lessons you learned uh, through your process of dealing with building different coalitions, multiracial organizations? And then this moment that we're in now where I think there's a legitimate concern, and I've expressed this to you uh, elsewhere, that the identitarian side of this movement could become prevalent enough to like turn people off. That if the language remains around white privilege and white America and black America, and there's no nuance there, it's just you know talked about through strictly a, race, a racial lens and a very limited one at that. Um, but then also what we can do on the left, you know, some of that we can't control, but what we can control on the left is how we speak to other people, the messages we put out and how we're trying to bring people into the movement. What are you, you know, what are your experiences? What have you learned and what would your advice be for the way that we talk about this today? Well, I mean, it's just before we got on the show, I was working on an article um, that's a bit presumptuous. Um, it's a response to what's just happened, um, including the the NBA response and the uh, you know the athletes and um, and so the, and the question that arises for them, I think, uh, is um, if you if you strike uh, and you go home, uh, Jalen Brown, who's on the Celtics, raised this in their discussions. He said, basically, if you strike and you go home, why is that worth anything? Okay, the strike is worth something, but then we're not doing anything. So if we don't have anything that we're going to do, and he actually said, look, I've been on the front lines. I'll go to Kenosha with all of you. Um, you know, but if you're not ready to do that, then we should not play because while we're playing, we can have an impact. Okay, but suppose they took it a step further and suppose they asked, well, what could we do, right? Um, and, and that's an important kind of thing. So if they strike it, it if they had ended the season and they didn't, they're in, they're not ending it today. I mean, they they voted to come back. I think Saturday. But if they uh, if something happens a week from now or two weeks from now, 
they will be confronted with the same situation and they probably will end the rest of the season, whatever's left. Um, and it was close. The Lakers and the, uh, and the uh, Clippers voted to end the season yet last night, which is quite remarkable. Anyway, um, what could they do, right? What, what, what could they do? And how do you think about that? Well, one part of that is what could they collectively do? Um, uh, maybe it's the less interesting part. One thing I thought about is, well, what if they march from Orlando to Washington? What if they literally, there's 450, I think, in the NBA. What if they literally strung themselves out every six feet and marched to Washington and would stop overnight in various places and, and there would be masses of people who would join, some for a short time, some for a long time. Okay, that's good, but it has to have demands. So then what demands? And here it gets tricky, right? How do you, it's coming out of a particular upsurge around race and around police violence. So you have to have demands around police violence and race. That's what's surging people. Um, and you also have to have demands about other things. And certainly from some parts of the community, the desire would be um, reparations. Um, and the, the, the thing about reparations is when you talk about it, you're talking about giving one community something that other communities don't get. And it's very, and it's perfectly justified. I mean, it's, of course it's justified to narrow the gap, um, to reduce the, the pain and the suffering of racism, but it's also of, in a form that can be exploited um, by people who want whites to feel like that they're being cheated on. Not just whites either. I don't mean to jump in, but I mean, you're also, yeah. I mean, the Hispanic, a huge yeah. section of the Hispanic population would not go for this. And just a note on this, only 19% of Americans, according to the latest Pew Research poll, even support it. Yeah. But nonetheless, a lot of organized folks would, yeah. would urge it, yeah. right? Okay. So is there a way to couch demands that accomplishes the goal, which is to raise those lower, to, to diminish the gaps and to increase justice and increase, you know. And, I, you know, I think there is. I think you say, you know, free medical care, free schooling, free, um, you know, very low cost housing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the reparations person might say, yeah, but if there's free medical care for here and free medical care for here, the gap's not shrinking. And if there's, more importantly, um, free education for all, the gap's not shrinking. Right. Because, the, because the school in the poor community is a mess. And the school in the rich community is very effective. So they're not getting the same thing. And that's true. Right. All right. So you change the demand a little and you say free schooling for everyone, but the standard of schooling is such and such a ratio from, for students to faculty such and such a ratio for equipment to population of students and for extracurricular, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you've done is you've raised the floor, right? And this gets nothing, gets no money because they're already there. And yet you're not saying, you're not couching it in a way that, that produces the problem. So that's one part of it. But another part of it, I think what you were describing in the, and the screenplay and taking this, I don't know whether taking this out of context is a good idea, but, but the, the exchanges, I think one of the exchanges is about privilege. 
mm-hmm. um, and the use of that terminology, which yeah. I think is diminishing now, but it was stronger when I wrote it two and a half years ago. And the other one was about, um, what the hell was the other one about? Explaining racism. That, oh, that right. it's not your job to, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the privilege one, the notion that is talked about in there is that talking in terms of white privilege makes people think that what's going on is that whites are losing something. Um, and then when you look and see what people call privilege, right, it's things like, um, you know, not being hounded by the cops. Right. Um, you right. know, being able to have a voice not be, you know, all things that everybody should have. Yeah. The solution isn't that the whites lose those things. Those privileges are privileges. Everybody, they're not privileges. They're rights. Everybody should have. Yeah. Right. So, so the terminology lends itself to what the white nationalists and the white racists say, and that's not very smart. Right. right. Isn't uh, to me, at least it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't enhance the likelihood of getting what you're trying to get, and it doesn't expand consciousness. Yep. Whereas saying that these are rights that everybody should have, that's fine. And the other one was um, oftentimes you'll have um, blacks and women um, saying, look, it's not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to tell you whites all about racism. It's not my responsibility, a woman now, to tell you men about sexism. Well, that's true. It's not. And it's a burden um, to have to do it. That's true also. Yeah. And it's also true that we live in a world where burdens are going to be things that we have to carry around to try and change the world. And so it that's a burden. It's also a burden to fight against racism. Does that mean that blacks won't fight against racism because that's a burden? No. Right. Does it mean that blacks should always be responsible and talk about race? No. But when you are better able to do it and when you're doing it would have a positive effect, then it's an action which pays off politically. That's the criteria. The criteria isn't, is it annoying for me? Right. Right. That's not the criteria. What kind of criteria is that? Right. And the same thing for women dealing with sexism. Uh, You know, sure, men should learn and then men should be able to organize other men. But no man is going to be as good as a woman who's good at it. Right. Right. And 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 the same thing for whites and blacks around race. And so sometimes it makes sense. And something that's interesting that's going on right now on the sports shows on TV, there are lots of black athletes uh, sometimes coaches who are being interviewed and talking and they are explaining racism on TV to, I hope, massively white audiences. Mm-hmm. And they are doing it very effectively. Um, uh, and I would even say getting away with doing it very effectively because it's not normal. It, this is something that's being won by the upsurge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it will have profound effects. I don't know. I'm not saying it ends racism forever, but it's definitely moving us forward. No. Well, I think that's it, my man. Is that okay? It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no we got a half hour before we talk to Peter. So, uh, oh, I go further. Uh, you know, I'm fine if you want to do more, but if you don't. No, let's okay. do it. We got 90 minutes down. We'll do another one. I got other sections I'd like to rip out on kinship from uh, 
you know, the conversation with Lydia's character. I, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I could talk about in here. All of it would be useful and applicable for people who are doing this work. So I appreciate it. It's up to you. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, ask me about how hard it is to, I mean, it's a ch- change of topic. Yeah. But, but how hard it is to, I mean, what are the odds that it will become a movie? Okay. Well, what are the odds it will become a movie? Slim. <laughs> they're, they're slim. 50,000 screenplays are written a year. And about 400 movies are made a year. So that's already slim, obviously. I mean, you know, just on the face of it, it's ludicrous. Yeah. And then there's the problem that it has none of the features that a film is supposed to have to be made into a film. It doesn't have an Oscar role. You know, it doesn't have a role that enhances the the reputation, the the acting career. It might enhance the respect given to actors because they did this. You know, there's all sorts of things, but it's not in the normal range of doing that. It doesn't have uh, pathos, human interpersonal pathos that we we line up with somebody and we root for them or we see ourselves and whatever it is. You know, it doesn't have any of that shit. Uh, all that can be done really well, but this doesn't have any of that. So the odds are pretty slim. So when I sent it around, I I get no response um, uh, from lots and lots of, well, not lots and lots, from let's say 20 um, progressive recipients. Now, part of the reason is because you can't even write to them. You can't reach them. You don't have their emails. You write to agents and to, um, this is for people who want to, you know, write a screenplay, I guess, and you can cut it out if you don't want it. Um, you write to agents and to publicists, and maybe the publicist or the agent passes it along. But to pass it along is risky because there's all sorts of lawsuit problems. Right. Because I don't have my own um, legally um, verified agent sending it to them. Um, it's just me sending it to them. And they can be accused of ripping it off if they do anything remotely like it. So there's all this insanity. Um, and then it'll, you know, it gets through maybe to, in my case, two, two uh, actors, one director. Um, uh, and, you know, got a lot of positive feedback, positive praise, but none of them took the plunge. Um, because it's a risky plunge to take. And also they're very busy, and so it's hard. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I keep trying and uh, uh, we'll see. Well, if anyone's listening who can make that happen, (laughs) (laughs) make it happen. Um, No, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for coming on again. Uh, Thank you. And Um, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. I'm here all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.